Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. It's another episode with me and Amber. And no Jordan, sad face, sad face, because she is so busy doing dissertational things. I got to see her yesterday, but it's a hard time for those four students who are finishing their dissertations this year. It's if, if you haven't done it, you don't know. It's kind of like if you hadn't had a baby, you have no idea. And writing a dissertation is its own birth and uh, demands its own, its own quiet sabbatical time of, of reflection, trauma, and grief. <laughs> That's where Jordan is. But you and I are going to be talking about a different topic, huh, Amber? Yes, we're going to be talking about bodies and power, which is a topic you have been into in the last few weeks, right? Preparing an article. Yeah, so I, I wrote an article for Jessica Tompkins' volume on power in the ancient world, and I presented it previously at an ASOR conference. ASOR is essentially a Near Eastern Studies or an ancient Middle Eastern Studies kind of conference. And so I presented on power and feminine power at this conference. And then I had to write up the article. It's much easier to present something and to just talk than it is to actually write it up. So I wrote it up and I'm like, well, let's just see what these reviewers say. Because, you know, when you're as busy as I am. Yeah. When you say write it up, you're at the computer, you're, you pound it, you pound out everything you've got. And then you are on to the next one. Because you always have multiple articles in the hopper. It's an interesting thing that when I had my child, and I only have one, but he has like four children put into one. He'll admit that and Amber will agree with me heartily. But when I had my child, I had to start working in a very different way. And I think women listening to this will nod their heads very vehemently and say yes. Because when you have a kid, you can only do something once, throw it off to where it needs to be. Let them do what they need to do with it. They throw it back to you. You do it again. And then you throw it back to them. Now, I'm not saying I just wrote an article in one go and then I just revised it in one go. But what I am saying is that the time I'm able to spend on these projects is much more limited than it has. It was in my previous pre-child lifetime, which brings us to the article in question, because the article in question is all about what it means to have a woman's body and how that affects power. So the main purpose of the article was to look at Michael Mann's system of power, his rubric that uses IEMP, ideological, economic, military, and political power, and splits oh, up social Professor power. Professor Cooney's taking us those... to class. So I know <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. And and it but it it's a brilliant intersectional rubric that allows us to look at power through an overlap through overlapping systems of how does money work how does political power of getting people to do what you want work how does military or force power work like violent threat or actual violence or and it includes informal and formal violence but you know i don't like the word military actually for this but that's a different criticism and then ideological power what do people believe and how how does all of that then work together in a complicated human stew of patriarchal power because Michael Mann is very clear, this is a patriarchal system that he's talking about. Is How does Michael that? Mann a, a theorist, a philosopher, social like, historian, social, social historian. historian. Okay. Yeah, 
And his work is, it's not recent. This The first book, I think, is 80 something. 86, I, don't know, I think. 86. Yeah. So it's not, it's not new. And but, they're huge, um, right? The, like, there's two volumes mm-hmm. and they're pretty, they're pretty big. He kind of covers most of Western history. Mm-hmm. And I use it in my class, Women in Power in the Ancient World. And it's really helpful for students when they're trying to figure out a system in the modern world of women in power, a system in the ancient world of women in power. How does money affect religion? How does politics affect money? How does, you know, and so on and so forth in these constantly intersectional feedback loops. And it's been the gift that keeps on giving. However, Michael Mann himself says the biggest fault with my work is that there's no discussion of gender and equity, gender dynamics. He uses the word gender. And he talks about this ever so briefly. And I cite what he says in his volume one. He has more discussion in later volumes because of course his work has been heavily critiqued. And when I say critiqued, I mean, in when a historian publishes a book or a social historian, it is de rigueur to produce, when the book comes out, to produce critical papers about the book. And even after the book has come out to produce more critical papers about the book. So my Islamic studies colleagues do this in Nelk. It's not something that ancient period scholars do as much. But when my Islamic studies colleagues come up with a book, there's a series of workshops or talks and the author will present something. And then you'll get like five or six papers about the work, critiquing the work. And then the author responds. And it's a really interesting and and can be quite, can create quite furious debates about what the work means and what our human condition is. So there's a whole lot of very useful criticism about Michael Mann as well. And people have brought it into interesting and new places. And my my biggest critique with this, just working with it through the years, is that there is no discussion of what it means to be a woman or in or of a different sexual identity within the imposed binary. And Amber, before we talked, what did you tell me about the binary. Go, go ahead. You're like, now Kara, remember to say, go, go on. <laughs> yeah, we, we mentioned a couple of uh, a couple of thoughts or issues that we wanted to address. A lot of times when you approach this topic, when you start to talk about male bodies, female bodies, or just men and women and things that may be true for uh, a woman that may not be true for a man, you can sometimes hear some uh, accusations of turfism. Mm-hmm. Or just gender essentialism or sexual identity right. essentialism. Right. That you're but, either a man or a woman and then that's it. And there's no other way to be in this world. Exactly. And what I was telling you is that I think that those critiques, when they come back at you, that these are from people who haven't necessarily paid attention to the the more nuanced aspects of your argument. So can you explain to people... why you use or why you have to in some way face and deal with this idea of a binary. Yeah. So the patriarchy is real, however you want to define it. But I like defining it as rule of the fathers is the actual translation in Greek, right? But patriarchy is the control in a society of resources. And if we use the Michael Mann model, you would say ideological, economic, military, political resources to have that exclusive control in the hands of a minority of men within a society that imposes a binary system between male and female. And if you don't fit into this binary system, you are considered aberrant and problematic. Not every patriarchy 
casts out or ostracizes people who don't fit into the two-part sexual system, but many do. And if others are accepted, it's within certain patriarchal rules, interestingly. So within a patriarchal system, and we still live within a patriarchal system, we have we are making anti-patriarchal strides, but we are not in a post-patriarchy. It, it means that if the resources are concentrated among those few men, then women often have to find their power, whether ideological, economic, military, or political, through one of these men in some way, by working at a corporation, by marrying one of them, by influencing one of them in some way, by being part of a religious institution, and so on and so forth. So let's go back to the binary. So the sexual binary is not real. It is not real. If you talk to a biologist and you say, how does sexuality manifest in the body? They will tell you about six to eight possible sexual manifestations and this occurring along a gradient, not being a binary. And I know Jay Phelan, who teaches at UCLA, he has his students do a sexual genetic test and they have the results opened at home because it often can be, if they want to do it, he doesn't actually impose the test either. But if they want to do the test, they open the results at home because it can be challenging to see where you fit along that gradient in what we assume is a binary and is not really. So, right. It's so, a construct of the patriarchy because it serves the patriarchy. It, it helps yes. to promote the status quo in one degree or another, depending on cultures and different societies. Right. So I'll, so I'll say right off the bat, where I'm, when I'm talking about power and sexual identity or power and gender, power in the body, I will state that these things are constructs and they're not real. They're not in our actual biology, but they have been imposed in the social system that we live in, in the water in which we swim. And so therefore I must talk about it as a binary. Now, so that's the first like big red flag that I want to clear. The second big red flag Amber, what do you, what was it? Go ahead and you mentioned uh, it already, but the, it was the. The nature of the ancient sources. Is that what you want to address? No, no. The turf, the turf part. Oh, what, what have we, what have people said before about that? And then I'll, I'll, I'll hit that. Well, they don't like your implication that the female body can't transcend or overcome some of the sexual dimorphism that you often talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so you come into a clash with different schools of feminism. And some of these actually can be from the far left. They could be from the far right, but they do not like some of the, I don't know if you call it like social implications or ideological implications of this idea of some bodies being weaker or stronger than others, or some bodies being more subject to what you would call commodification than others. So let me be very clear. I am no TERF. What the hell does TERF stand for? Is it, it's trans-exclusionary. Radical feminist. Radical something, feminism, I, think, I, I think. Yes. Which yes. is a subset of reactionary feminism, which is a way of saying that the body defines you and that we shouldn't ignore that we're in a human body that's male or female. And really, it does take on a lot of the gender binary. So that's not what I'm trying to do. but what I am trying to do is look at different bodies and how they manifest in the world and how the patriarchy uses them. So I have put this into gender and sexuality, but as I did, I got my, my peer review and, and there was all this thought going on swirling around in my head. And I thought I, I was going to add an S 
And the way I teach it in my class is I like the IEMP of Michael Mann, but I need to add an S for sexual identity. And I think that's problematic and it's not broad enough. One of the reasons the Michael Mann system is so useful is because it's so broad. And so I, wa- I decided to add a B. So then you could say, IEMPB, you're adding body, and it means how much ideological, economic, military, or political power you get is determined by what kind of a body you have. You might have the body of a child. You might have the body of somebody who's been castrated in a particular society so you can have a certain kind of power. That would be a male body in the binary system. You might be in a female body in the binary system, a body that is capable of reproducing. And then you fall within a certain gradient of sexual dimorphism of generally having a weaker body in terms of muscle mass and having a body that has the elements that can reproduce. That would be, you know, uterus, fallopian tubes, vaginal canal, breasts that can lactate, all of these things that are part of being able to reproduce. And there are many different bodies that can do that. But in this binary system and for the purposes of this podcast, we'll go ahead and call it a woman's body or a female body, right? And so what I really wanted to do was to ask within a patriarchy, particularly within an ancient world patriarchy or within a pre-modern patriarchy, no birth control, no late capitalist, everybody has to work kind of stuff. It's a different world. How is the female body essential to finding or not finding power? Or how just how is anybody, a disabled body, a body that's been maimed in war, a body that that's been marked or branded in some way. If you use the word body can apply to all different kinds of issues. Body can apply to racism, to people with darker skin color. And one of the examples that I used in the rewrite of the article was the first gynecologist whose name I can't remember, but the quote unquote first gynecologist and how he practiced without anesthesia on his own female slaves to understand the science of gynecology and to start writing his textbooks. So Obviously, having a female body in that case was essential for that woman to lose power at the hands of that man, marrying something, and then to to have a black skinned body that was owned by him, that was commodified by him such that he could practice on her in, in that way. So to me, returning to the body is essential to understanding power. And that's not to say that women cannot transcend their bodies, that women have not transcended their bodies. They can and they do. So it's not that women haven't transcended their bodies and can't transcend their bodies. They can and they do. But having a body capable of reproduction or having a disabled body or having a certain color skin or whatever can, and I don't talk about those latter parts as much. I'm I'm focusing on what it means to have a woman's body. Having a woman's body allows one to be much more easily commodified and controlled in a patriarchal system than not. And this is this is really complicated stuff. This and I need to walk through it very carefully, hence yeah, the podcast can you, and can the article. You, yeah. Could you talk about like what how do you commodify a woman's body or anybody's body for that matter? And something I'm I'm thinking about is you're talking about your approach is that you're bringing a materialism to the body, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which you discuss. Mm-hmm. And I think that it really dovetails quite nicely with a lot of other studies of ancient Egypt and ancient societies, because a lot of times what you're looking at is the material that people mm-hmm. produced and used in, in their societies. So I think that 
that's a good thing to kind of address as well. I, I imagine a lot of people are listening to this and are like, what does it mean to commodify right. one's body? So commodification of someone's body is using that body with or without their permission to almost like a parasite to use it for your own power. So you extend your power to other people's bodies so that your own power can grow and you can amass. And this is the patriarch who is doing this, right? In a, in a hunter-gatherer world, you don't amass goods and products. You're not saving things from your farm. You're not farming. You're going through your materials quite quickly. If there's a scarce product, like you've hunted a pig, you're going you're gonna to dry some of that and carry it around. Okay, fine. But it, that, you're not go going to be able to hoard it and maintain it and keep it. You're not um, staying in one place, like building grain. silos. Yeah, yeah. You're moving, yeah, right. right? So typically in those kind you, of you don't have that scarce, yeah, that scarce grain commodity. Like who has control of the grain? Who has control of the bread? That kind of thing. You have to use your commodities up very quickly, and so you don't have the ability to commodify people in the same kind of way in most hunter-gatherer societies. Not all, not all, by any chance. There's a huge gradient there, and I mean, Amber, you know that I'm obsessed with new materialism. New materialism is essentially like, and I've written an article in my, in the social history volume that we did with Rutledge, which is all about geography and how geography helps to form societies. And I want to do the same with the human body and talk about how having a particular body helps to form your power. Now, a lot of people come back at me and they say, how dare you now you're doing geographic determinism or how dare you? you are claiming bodily determinism and that your body or your geography will determine everything about your life. And no, that is not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the landscape that you live in is as formative to what kind of power or what kind of lifestyle, what kind of culture you're going to live in as cultural ideals that were maybe brought in from elsewhere, that it's the, it's the way of finding the area of a rectangle. It's the sides that you multiply together, that one side isn't more important than the other. You need both. And in the same way, the body, it, it really does determine our power. And I think that many women in upper middle class society, many white women are, are having a much easier time denying that their bodies determine anything about their lives until maybe they decide to have a baby. And if they don't decide to have a baby or they haven't had any other sexual impositions from male partners, then they won't necessarily understand what it is that I'm talking about. But let's just go to the commodification of what comes from a woman's body in the patriarchal scheme of things. And that would be children, babies. If you're talking about a patriarchal society, let's go back to ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, some ancient society that's agriculturally based. And you have these farms, some of them big, some of them small. Let's say we're in Greece and we have a small landholding farm. And you've got, like we could imagine reading Hesiod where he tells you, if you start your farm, get a woman, not a wife, just a woman, right? And that woman is owned. That woman is commodified. This is a more overt expression of this. And he talks about how the woman's going to do all kinds of labor. He doesn't overtly say that he's going to be raping that woman and creating offspring with that woman, but it's implied. It's implied in the text. And the woman's body is 
within the system of sexual dimorphism, weaker in terms of muscle mass than the man's. She can't fight off. She is impregnable. Her body will receive that sperm and she can't then gestate outside of her body the way that a man can. The body gestates within it. And anybody who's been pregnant, Amber, I know you've been pregnant twice more than eight, twice. How did that pregnancy make you feel? Did it make you feel super powerful and like you could get anything done? On the one hand, you are amazed that Mm -hmm. your body is capable of creating new life and another human being. But the actual process as you go through it, yeah, it, it, there are aspects of it in which, you know, you have to realize that, okay, I'm eight, nine months pregnant and I'm just not going to be able to function in the way that I need to. Also, talking about the social influences as well, other people around you start to exclude you because you are pregnant, whether it's your doctor telling you, okay, it's time to sit back and put your feet up and wait for this baby to come or work that doesn't want you to go into labor while you're working. So, yeah. So you have to leave the workplace at a mm-hmm. certain point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You have to leave those halls of power, whether they be ideological, military, political, or economic. You, well, you and have, it's you an are expected excluded. absence, right? And so already before you leave, there's preparation for you not being there to do your mm-hmm. job. And the tendency of employers to want to fill those gaps is confirmed by the fact that there are laws in place to help protect a woman's job when she has a baby. And thank you for pointing out that talking about the body is absolutely necessary in order to transcend what it does to us. And if we don't talk about it and how biology can determine certain things in our lives, we don't talk about it, then we won't ever get these kinds of laws. Well, it doesn't make you feel great to have to acknowledge that there are social cultural forces around you or even your body itself that's sort of working against your own will and, you know, your own desires. Um, You want to, for some people, you want to have a family, but you are immediately confronted with what you have to sacrifice in order to make that happen within a patriarchal society. Yeah. So I felt like shit when I was pregnant. I hated it. And the first four months were probably the worst part. Because the morning sickness, morning sickness was, yeah. oh my God. And then when you read about how the masculine hormones in your body are doubling every day and, and it just, it made me so sick. I couldn't walk from, if you know UCLA, parking structure two to Kaplan Hall without resting twice on those stupid fig tree trunks. You know how they stick out and they give you a little place mm-hmm. to sit? Now yeah. perch my pregnant ass on those things and be like, okay, you're going to make it. To the class. And then you should have seen me trying to teach. And I'm like, where am I going to sit while I'm teaching? Because I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. And you're walking around with a big pregnant belly, right? And so you're also drawing attention from other people. I didn't have any belly then, actually. It was kind of funny because then I I still had a flat stomach because it was the first four months, first three months. Early in your pregnancy. With morning sickness. I'm thinking later when you're like visibly pregnant and people are, you know. In our society, you're not supposed to tell anyone, right? So you have the Mm. flat belly, you look fine, you're not able to eat, you're going to vomit like any second and you have to make it through your day and no one knows. And it's just like, how do you tell people? And you're like, oh, I'm pregnant in mornings. Yeah, I have morning sickness. And then people react in a weird way. And it's something that can, that you don't want to let out because it will jeopardize your job and your position of power so easily. That is not something you want to let out until well, people you have immediately to let it out. start to see you differently. Yeah. And just that fact alone just tells you that the physical body obviously plays a role in your life experience and the social cultural 
position that you find yourself in. Look, I know there are those women that are like, pregnancy is so beautiful and I love being pregnant, but I was not that chick. And I felt like it was the movie Alien and like, and mm-hmm. I love my boy. I love my boy. But like, it was like the movie Alien and every day some new indignity would reveal itself. I'm like, wait, this is going to happen to my body and that's going to happen to my body. And what else? And the whole process, you feel your loss of power because power in a patriarchy is dependent on being hot to the opposite sex within the binary system. And your hotness is being removed from you as you gestate this child. And you haven't even had the child come out of your body yet, which is the greatest indignity or danger of them all. Yeah, I mean, I think you're alluding a little bit. I think there was an article that both you and I read a, a while back about young teenage girls who find themselves pregnant, how before they're pregnant, they're sort of viewed as these youthful party girls who are, as you say, attractive to boys or other sexual partners. But then the moment that they're pregnant, the perception of them switches from, you know, this sexualized sort of image to now they are more honored. They're more respected. They're mothers or seem Mm -hmm. to be mothers. And so, yes, if you have experienced pregnancy, it becomes very apparent very quickly that people's perception of you has changed at your perception of yourself and what you can and can't do according to mm-hmm. society's rules. And that's social power, people's perception, mm-hmm. your perception among people, your, your working with those people, that's social power. And that's how it works. Now let's go back to ancient Egypt or ancient Greece. We're go- oh, we're doing Hesiod's Greece, right? We're on the, we're in the rocky hillsides of Hesiod's farm. And so maybe Hesiod's got this slave woman, maybe he forcibly rapes her and gets another couple of slaves. That woman's body is not going to put her in a powerful position on two counts, one having been commodified as an enslaved person and two being a female enslaved person who can be forced to bear this man's child, her owner's child, her enslaver. Now, let's say Hesiod gets a wife. Finally, he he makes a deal with somebody else. There's a dowry. There's all kinds of political shenanigans, economic shenanigans about what you have to do to get this woman to come in. But this woman is meant to, within a patriarchal system that can be a farming system or a herding system, is ideally meant to have a baby every year, every year, because you need to stock your farm with laborers, protectors, sons. If you're going to have daughters, you need to stock your farm with domestic helpers, with women that you can use as political, economic pawns to connect with other farmers in your area, marrying them off and creating these connections, if you like, diplomatic connections. But the woman within a patriarchal system is immediately put to the work of creating the most scarce commodity of all, more people. And if you compare this to a hunter-gatherer society where, in general, a tribe encourages or demands that a woman only have a baby every four years. And if a baby has, if a woman has a baby before that four years is up, often there's an infanticide or some other means of dealing with that. Or maybe the baby is given to somebody whose baby has died because it's so hard to care for two babies simultaneously when you're constantly on the move. And having too large a tribe is is devastatingly destabilizing for most hunter-gatherer tribes. So you have your babies every four years. You hold that baby. You're not feeding that baby. You're connecting with that baby. When you move into, and it takes thousands of years on this earth to move from a pre-patriarchal into a patriarchal system, 
When you move into a patriarchal system, then the production of that baby every year is demanded of the woman's body to create the scarce resources, but it also then demands that the woman's body be marked as as owned as well, because now we have private property. Now we have scarce resources we need to maintain. So now the men who are in a community are not like hunter-gatherers content to have a baby with that woman and then that woman and then that woman and they break up every four years or so, or so on. We now have a wife who is marked as belonging to that man. And if she has sex with anyone who is not that man, she will be subject to punishment as an adulterer. And you'll get all of this new morality that's developed within patriarchal systems. And she is sometimes veiled. She sometimes has to change her name. Um, she, some, she often moves to the husband's house and has to deal with the in-laws over in that house. But she needs to be having a baby every year. It's a baby that is marked and controlled within that patriarchal system. So it's, um, and it's a way for the husband in the situation, the patriarch, if you like, of the family to use her body parasitically to produce more scarce resources. To produce well, more and, and the labor. means to maintain generational wealth, his legacy, mm -hmm. to pass along the material wealth that mm -hmm. he has gained. I know you like to address the difference between ancient Egyptian women and women elsewhere in the ancient world when it comes to, you know, what you just mentioned, this idea of a woman who either commits adultery or has sex with a woman who is not her husband, i.e. it or a, an approved Male. Sex with a woman who is not her husband. You meant sex with a man who is oh, not sorry, her husband. Sorry. I mean, you know, it, it, it's probably why lesbian relationships happen under under um, the cloak of secrecy. Well, the, idea, and the idea is, is that <laughs> patriarchy has some rules about if you mm -hmm. are a, a wife or if you are somehow attached, who you can have sex with because you don't want to have children with the or the patriarchy doesn't want you to have children with the wrong person, right? Because then this could cause a problem with material wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you have bride prices, you have dowries, marriage and the transfer of a woman from one family to another is an economic thing. And it is akin to ownership. And if you look at some laws of antiquity or pre-modern societies, you will see that women are, they don't often say it directly because women might get upset, but they are owned. Um, until quite recently in the United States, women could not vote because the men in their household were doing the voting for them. So they didn't need to have this additional independent vote, right? They couldn't have a bank account. They couldn't have a credit card. All of these things were supposed to be done through the husband. So this idea of commodification is something that the female body is more prone to having done to it. And I have a lot of students in my class, Women in Power, say, but wait, giving birth is the most powerful thing that you can do. Doesn't that make you more powerful? And I say, is the cow in a farm powerful because it can produce milk? Um, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, Gary, you go right there. I go it right is. to it. If comparing a woman to a cow makes you uncomfortable, I'm trying to do that. That is my point. But it's the same kind of thing. And women in patriarchal societies are the milk givers, the domestic labor givers, the child givers that the farm depends on. It's the key to a farming institution. It's why he says, get a woman, not a wife. First thing, first instruction, get a woman, not a wife. It is the woman as the cow. And I do need it to be understood in that way. But what, what were you going to say? 
Well, I was going to say, I, I mean, obviously it's not a pretty comparison, but there's absolutely truth in it. But it's interesting. I was thinking as you were listing off all of the things that in many patriarchal societies, women are not legally or were not allowed legally to do. So you commodify women's bodies and then you make laws or rules that help to maintain that commodification, right? You try yeah. to cut off any path that they might have to circumvent it or to transcend it in either way. And this is something that is reflected in ancient societies. And as we all know very well, modern society as well, cut off these avenues that women have to transcend whatever social cultural limitations they might find. Mm -hmm. And and you brought up the comparison between Egypt and Greece. So let's let's jump into that, which is super interesting. So in Greece, according to ancient texts, if a woman has sex with a man who is not her husband, the punishment can be quite severe. And in addition, the mechanism of keeping a woman within her house could also be quite strict in terms of not being able to leave the house without a male accompaniment, veiling, all of these other things in Greek household. Because there's so much competition because everyone's got their small landholding farm because everyone wants to pass down their wealth and create their generational wealth for the next generation or every patriarch does that is. And, and many of the women involved in these things see their power in that way as well and are part of that system and are in agreement or at least working with that system. That is how they find power. Now compare it to Egypt where you actually don't have adultery laws until quite late. You don't have any evidence of veiling or maintaining a woman in the house, not letting her leave. You don't have any strict adultery punishments, nor do you have premarital sex punishments, which is really interesting, or any sorts of virgin checks. Like you don't get a whole lot of virgin trauma and anxiety in ancient Egypt. People aren't as freaked out about it. And I've always wondered, what is it? It's not, is it that Egyptians are more enlightened than the rest of humanity, no, same DNA, same people, same everything, you know, what's going on? What's going on here? And I would argue that there's less private property in ancient Egypt until you get into the late period and into Greek settler colonialism economies. You have large institutions, large temples, large palace economies that control vast tracts of land. And those vast tracts of land have masses of peasantry who are there as sharecroppers, who are not there as independent landholders. And as such, having sex and offspring with three different women or having an adulterous affair or having premarital sex is far less devastating, if devastating at all, to a family that can't really hoard their production on the farm after they've given off a massive tax to their landowner and can't really create generational wealth. As peasantry, they're, they're kept within a kind of serfdom sort of situation. And these are arguments that go fast and furious in, in ancient economic circles when you're talking about ancient Egypt. But without as much land ownership, it, it doesn't, and as much competition amongst those landowners, it doesn't matter how many sons a woman has necessarily, or whether or not those sons might potentially come from an adulterous affair or whether she gets a divorce. Because in Egypt, you could get a divorce and it could be initiated by the woman and you could not do that in most other ancient places. And here you see a wonderful confluence of how geography can create a certain kind of culture in, in terms of morality, in terms of 
laws and, and legal strictures and in terms of what a marriage is supposed to be and how it works and how the body, the human body, male or female, as a binary imposed by the patriarchy can then be more or less or differently commodified. I'm not going to say the female body in ancient Egypt wasn't commodified. It sure as hell was, but it was done in a, in a slightly different way with a little more free love, <laughs> a little yeah. less no, eating. It's, it's interesting because, you know, as you point out, the geography and materialism argument when applied to Egypt is great because even positivist ancient Egyptian or histories of ancient Egypt one of the first things they'll discuss is how Egypt's geography helped to create, you know, Egypt's very unique brand of religion, their worldview, how they even thought of the world being created. And mm -hmm. so there's a, sort of an implicit acknowledgement there, or rather explicit acknowledgement, that geography of ancient Egypt helped to determine quite a lot culturally and socially. Yeah. So... So now I want, you know, what I want to do now is I want to jump into this idea of, I get a lot of pushback from this in my class, Women in Power. How can you tell me that I don't have the power that I know I have? I have all of this power. Why do I need all of this feminism shoved down my throat? Why, do you, why are you going to tell me that I'm not powerful? And one of the things that I do when I start out the class is I discuss ideological, economic, military, and political power and who holds it in the United States, in Canada, and who holds it in um, a global sense. So, you know, you could start out with political power and you could be like, we haven't had a female president, you know. Those that have had a female leader of state, it's, a, it's in a prime minister parliamentary system where there's no direct election. It's you elect your representatives who then elect the woman themselves. So without the direct voting, people are like, okay, we'll take a, a woman, that's okay. But when you're looking at, feminism being nothing more than 50% of the population should have 50% of power. If you look at the United States or most parliamentary systems around the world, you're talking about 20 to, to 30 something percent female representation in these governing bodies, which is not 50%. And it goes up and down, but it stays around. Even if you're super enlightened and supposedly post-patriarchal, you're going to be stuck at around 30, 35% and you're not going to be able to get to that 50%. The only place I've seen go beyond 50% for female leadership in a parliamentary system is Rwanda. And that's after all the dudes were killed in massive civil wars. So then when all the men are killed, then they will suffer a woman to rule because there's no one left. And that is why crisis is one of the chief avenues, I argue, that allows women into power in the ancient and modern world. Assassinations and then a daughter or a wife can find her way to the prime minister position, right? Something like that. We all know examples of, of these things in the modern day. Economic power, there is less, there are less than 10% of CEOs who are women in Fortune 500 companies. Please look it up if you don't believe me. And globally, the number is far worse, but single digit, right? So it's like eight, 9% in the United States and Canada, maybe 11 if you go to Canada, I'm not sure, of female CEOs in Fortune 500 and then go abroad and it's, I don't know, 3%, something like that. In terms of money and scarce resources, women do not have it. And if you look at the upper echelons of American society, say you go to the Upper East Side and you go to some fundraiser for some hospital somewhere, you will see that the very rich white women in a white supremacist patriarchal American world have to work through men to get their scarce resources. So that's political, economic, military. 
is the place where the United States is making the greatest strides, actually. And I always argue that it's because of the hierarchical imposition of power that it's changed so quickly in every branch of the armed forces except the Marines. That when you impose it and you say, we are going to have female leadership, whether you like it or not, it happens because people go into the military and they're retrained to say, yes, sir, and do things in a very strict hierarchical way. So you can see things changing in the military very quickly. Is it 50% power for women? Hell's no, but it's changing more quickly than other parts of society. But that's only the United States. Please look globally and you'll see a different story. And then finally, ideological power, which is Judeo-Christian, Islamic, Mormon, or LDS in most of the world. And they're specifically written out of power in the scriptures of these religions. So they don't have any power. If you have a female leader in your church, you are in the minority by far. Women have very little ideological power, which is, according to Michael Mann, the most powerful of powers because it can get people to do what is not in their own best interest. Yeah, by it just can a belief. you that you are empowered mm-hmm. yeah, in your body yeah. even when you are not. And this is what I'm thinking while you're outlining all of this is who benefits when you don't make yourself uncomfortable and think about the ways in which you are disadvantaged by your body or commodified through your body, by Mm -hmm. society, by culture? Who benefits when you don't examine that, right? So it goes without saying. I mean, Amber, you and I have been obsessed with trad wives on Instagram recently, right? I think I may have sent you a couple. (laughs) And we both follow on Helen Peterson on Subsequently had many nightmares. Thank you. Did you really? Not great dreams. No, I mean, it's, it's awful. Yeah. To, to imagine that that kind of existence or just the limitation of the mind. Yeah. But this is why the Michael Mann schema is so useful, because you can see how women think they have power within an ideological construct of morality. Well, you're told that, that that is how mm-hmm. you have power, that that is mm-hmm. how you have your value. And meanwhile, they expect you simply not to lift the, the veil a little bit. <laughs> And to see that underneath is it, it assists the status quo. It just helps to maintain it. Yeah. And I've heard so many people say women have power in the household and they could then control the man through that household. And really women all have the power. And I'm like, are you for reals? Like you're telling me that you have to rule through a man and you see that as women really having power or the, and, and this is why women have the reputation in today's society as being duplicitous, hormonal, emotional, up and down, all of these things, because they often have to use emotional power, which I would say is a kind of ideological power, to get a man to do something for them, to get the patriarchal power to bend to their will. And women that are connected more closely to the dominant systems of power might not even see that they don't have power because they're not looking to their sister's who have darker skin or to their sisters who are working shit jobs or to their sisters who are single mothers because they, because the patriarchy does not inform, it does not create a sisterhood. It does the opposite. It pits women against each other to all try to get scarce resources from the men in the patriarchy. It, it does the opposite. Right. The more disconnected you feel to those around you, all to the good as far as the patriarchy is concerned. You know, another thought I had when you were talking about the U.S. Mm -hmm. military and how Mm -hmm. 
that's one of the areas where women seem to be having greater numbers. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about it in today's society, you also simply have less men who are interested in going into the military. And so suddenly this is opening up perhaps the possibility for women to fill more of those roles. It's like when Katie Couric became a nightly anchor, right? Was it mm -hmm. for CBS, I think? Mm -hmm. Do you think she would have gotten into that position if there would have been a viable male alternative that the bigwigs were satisfied with? No, and, and she got and, into it right when nightly news as a thing was dying and cable news was growing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this is when they decide to let a woman in, right? And she mm -hmm. has said this herself since, yeah. that at the time she wasn't necessarily aware of this or like explicitly telling this to herself. But now looking back, she sees, she's like, oh, of course they yeah. let me in when it's dying. Of course they let me in when they didn't have a male candidate that they were you know, very interested in. So the pieces started to click for her once she was able to look back and have a little bit of hindsight. It's the same thing with being a humanities professor. People are like, oh, my goodness, look at all the women that are now in the academy. It's like, yeah, as soon as like capitalism, patriarchal structures start to burn it from the inside out, they're going to let the chicks in. Why do you think there's not many guys here in a binary system? It's because it's a shit job. It's, well, and it's, it's being strangled as far as job. funding and social value, this sort of thing. It, it, that's all declining as far as the public's view, I think, of humanities. I mean, how many programs have we heard of that are being axed or simply just looked at and questioned? Why does this program even exist? So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's when the patriarchy's done with it or has moved on in some way that, that women start to get it. And I hate to think of it this way, but it's sort of like like you with with Egypt and these histories that are like, ah, look at how much better women's rights, quote unquote, were in ancient Egypt. They could divorce, they could own property and this sort of thing. And then I feel like you come along with your squinty, cynical eyes and are like, yes, but why? Like you just, you can't wave the flag and be like, yeah, this was awesome. Great. Early feminine. No, no, there's something, there's something more here. We have to look underneath to see what the why really is. And it kind of sucks because always when you look for that why, you always find a why. <laughs> and it's typically <laughs> never a positive thing. And I think that this I mean, is part you know of, what I think of people, why they don't like some of the things that you say is because like, this does not yeah. make me feel great about no. society and my place in society. You know, it makes me feel like we've been fooled into thinking that we've made some progress when in reality, it's just these loose trappings. And then you throw on what's current first, events and yeah, I just. What's the first the rule of alcoholics, there. Alcoholics Anonymous? What's the first rule? Admitting that you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And right now, women, particularly white women or empowered women within the dominant culture, wherever they find themselves, are not admitting. A lot are. A lot are. But a lot are not admitting that they have a problem. We see this return to the trad wife wearing your gingham little outfit and obeying your husband and having as many children as God blesses you with and making bread and all of these things. So admitting you have a problem is looking, as you say with my squinty-eyed, cynical gaze. <laughs> Very picturesque description, right? <laughs> yeah. And and saying, look at Hatshepsut, look at Cleopatra, look at Tawasret, look at what, or Ahmos Nefertari, and look at how they had to find power within a patriarchal system. And don't look at it positivistically. Look at it with all that patriarchy can give you. 
they didn't create feminism. They worked within the systems that they were given. And if they ruled differently, it's because they had, if they ruled more peacefully, if they ruled without rocking the boat as much, if they ruled by giving out more jobs and and creating a broader base of power, let me tell you, they did it that way because they had less access to the ideological, economic, military, and political power systems than the mass of men around them who are in their court. They had to do it that way. It's not that women are inherently more peaceful, I would argue. It's not that they're inherently not violent in their binarily weaker bodies as defined on the binary. It's that we don't have the resources to go at men in the same way. Now, I I could go further with that because I think it's a little too simplistic, especially as we are living in systems that can be anti-patriarchal, you still don't see women murdering or violently abusing as much as men. That's, but that's a different topic. And I think we need more scientific help for that one. We need so a psychologist gonna, for that one. We, but how much does the body potentially have to do with that? But because a woman's bodily survival, if she has three kids, is not to lose her ever-loving mind go on a violent spree and kill her three kids and herself the way, because that's not going to help her situation. In the same way, it might, in the patriarchally constructed binary, help a man's situation. Killing your children and your wife is something that happens on the regular in patriarchal societies. This is not unusual. Just look, open up the papers digitally, read what's in, on the interwebs, what's been reported that day. But the killing of your partner as a mechanism of control, is just the end state of the military power in a Michael Mann schema of the violence that a man on the binary can impose upon those with weaker bodies to maintain his power. That murder at the end or rape at the end is the, is really, I don't want to compare rape to this because it's a different topic, but that murder at the end is the end stage when he just couldn't get what he wanted anymore and he was done. But let me right. tell you, the amount of beatings that preceded that murder were several, were hundreds, were so many they cannot be counted. And that power works. It functions. It works for patriarchs in this patriarchal system. Well, I agree with you that this is starting to brush up against topics that are beyond our ken. Yes. To a certain extent. Yeah. But, but what I will bring up, and I think that this does touch on, is the fact that, I mean, we have discussed the very many ways in which patriarchy works against and, and fails women, but it fails everyone across the board, including men who find themselves in whatever situation it might be where they are moved to violence or yeah. any kind of socially you know, damaging action. And so I think that, that that's something to keep in mind as well. So I love this point because I do try to say it sooner rather than later. And now we're an hour in and and I'm finally going to say that patriarchy is not good for most men. It may be good for the Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk of the world or Donald Trump or whatever, but it's not good for most men. Most men are abused within a patriarchy, particularly as children. And just read up on the Boy Scouts of America. Just read up on the Catholic Church. Just read up on disclosures of sexual abuse of men and or girls and boys within the evangelical um, church construct. The, this is, patriarchy in some ways demands a violent control and thus that creates 
all kinds of abuse. Patriarchy also demands that sexuality that naturally occurs in a biological body along a gradient be suppressed and fit into a patriarchal binary. And thus people who consider themselves non-binary or consider themselves attracted same sex, if they practice that, they will be ostracized. And so they don't. And subsuming it and pretending it doesn't exist can create all kinds of psychologically damaging situations and abuse situations that are not good for people. And I am not, let me be very clear, comparing same-sex relationships with pedophilia abuse. Please let me, let me be clear on that one. These are two very different topics. I put the latter pedophiliac abuse into a patriarchal category of the kind of abuse that happens by the patriarch within four walls, unnoticed, of an ideological institution like yeah. the Catholic Church. Yes, yeah. Under, yeah. understood, yeah. understood. Yeah. But I mean, let's go back in time and state, because we started with the commodification of the female body, right? And let's imagine that you're in Greece or you're in Egypt or you're somewhere and you're on your fourth kid. And you can't stop. You've survived that long. This is you great. You survived that long. You know how to do it now. You've gotten over how to deal with the morning sickness. It doesn't affect you quite as much as it did the first time. Or you just got little tricks of the trade now. You know how to do it and have better control over your own body. And you're peeing sideways. Yes, because your body's been damaged so much by the birth Sorry, processes. Folks. Oh, no, it's horrible. And you can't you can't jump around or dance the way you used to at the festivals for the goddess or I'm whatever. Saying if, we're, if we're keeping it real, she yeah, survived. She survived long enough to have four children and she has all the subsequent changes to her body that comes mm-hmm. with each subsequent pregnancy. Yeah, she's she's not nearly as hot as she used to be, but now she's there lying in bed next to the husband. She is a vessel for future impregnation. Maybe you're in a situation where you know you're, maybe you're a super rich Greek lady and you know your husband's hanging out with the courtesans of the world. You are not going to be able to do anything about that. Maybe he impregnates one of those courtesans. That's a bastard child. Your child is legitimate, but you're also not attracting your husband potentially in the same way that you did before. We can't all look like the chick on Ballerina Farm. If you don't know what Ballerina Farm is, please go to Instagram and search that trad wife. I will not. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've, you've had all these children. And the other thing that we must mention, if you've been removed from the halls of power by all of this childbearing and birthing, you are also breastfeeding constantly, weaning after a year, ideally, so you can get pregnant again. And you are making clothes. You are baking the bread. You are cleaning the house. You are maintaining the domestic sphere and you are the labor of that house. And trust me, as soon as you can, you will get your children to start helping you to clean that space as well so that it's not all on you. And the children who are going to be cleaning are your daughters. Your sons will be taken out into the farm to learn how to grow the scarce commodities with their scarce labor. And you're, you're now, your servitude, you're, you're put to work. You're, you're the domestic labor of the, and yes, you have power in your household. Okay, fine. But, and if you're a super wealthy woman, you might have servants who are helping you. And we could talk about all of the overlapping systems of power that Michael Mann can help us with, that you have economic power and political power over others. And thus your body power is not as uh, problematic to you as it is for your female slave, enslaved person, for instance. These things can all work intersectionally. Well, and don't forget about the social and emotional labor. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing oh, let's, with let's talk about that. Upset Amber. children, sick children, um, mother-in-law. Maybe she lives nearby. 
family dynamics, a larger dynamics within your local community. While people, men, are out within those other arenas that you talk about, military, political, economic, you are in your community space, your domestic space, shouldering all of that social and emotional burden as well. Now, let's be clear, we can't really get at this through the ancient sources, but being human beings with lived experience here on Earth, I think that we can posit that that was happening. Yeah. And, and I want to make a point here I think is really interesting. And, and, I, and we're verging into cognitive behavioral, psychological, and evolutionary biology, which is really interesting. But I don't think that men and women's emotions are drastically different in their body state. I think they're very similar. But I think within a patriarchally imposed binary, women's emotions are more appropriate socially and culturally to expose and we're demanded to show them more. So there's more crying or emotionality that's considered more tender, more weak, even. Right. Emotion doesn't necessarily benefit you in spaces of power. No, no, at all. But it will benefit you in the home and for the socio-emotional labor of getting your patriarch to do some shit for you, it may be your only option to cry to have an emotional breakdown, to lie, to try to use emotionality, one of your only tools to get something in an emotional space of power. Whereas for the man, emotionality must be subsumed into a much more limited spectrum of acceptable emotions, such as anger, rage. You got anything else to remember? I mean, it's this kind of toxic Anger, control. rage, you know, violence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, lots of... Or a stoic sort of A-emotionality, right? That's very accepted. And, and if you read an Egyptian instruction, you'll see you're not supposed to be emotional when you're, when you're hanging out with the, with the guys in a place of power. You're supposed to be measured, speak only when you need to speak clearly and truthfully. And if you need to be angry, then these are the circumstances, that kind of thing. But that creates a very toxic emotional space for the men who inhabit this binary right place, like i said right? emotion in spaces of power does not help or further the patriarchy and so it's something that's it's frowned upon i just thought it worth mentioning in your little thought experiment on your own you know when you're thinking about ancient history that there's a, a whole other spectrum of mm -hmm. uh, life experience that we just aren't able to get at in the ancient sources but that we yeah. know must have played uh, some kind of a role. Yeah. So, so can I, can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Because as I said, unfortunately it's kind of true is that once you start looking at the why question of why does this happen in a patriarchal society? Why does that happen? And you start to look underneath, you always find the why there's always the cynical, like, uh-huh, you know? Mm -hmm. So is there anything positive that we can take from this discussion that we've had, because one thing that I've always come back to is, yeah, some of these comparisons that you've made, some of these thoughts that you've expressed, these you know points that you've made and perspectives you've presented, they don't make you feel great. Right. But as you said before, simply acknowledging them or creating an awareness within yourself is a force against patriarchy in and of itself, because you are then calling into question 
the things that patriarchy asks you to simply accept without criticism, without critique at all. And so, because it's morality, you're yeah, good yeah. or you're bad. Well, what do you what? So, what do you think? Like, what is something positive you can take from this body and power discussion that we've had? I think that the strides that we have made in some societies have been extraordinary, and that the pushback we see against them now is extreme and hard. But it also is a symptom of what happens in patriarchal structures when too much power is gained by a subset of that society. So you see anti-abortion laws in half of the states, you know, popping up here and there and all kinds of legal strictures and whether or not you can leave the state to get an abortion and go someplace else, et cetera, et cetera. Seeing the, the patriarchy push back in this way is frightening, but it can also help us to understand how far we've come. And so, you know, I, I sent you this article, Amber, you know which one I'm talking about, the one about no-fault divorce mm-hmm. and the Atlantic. Yeah. So get the Atlantic. If you only, they give you a couple articles free a month. So make sure you read the no-fault divorce article that's just come out in the Atlantic. It's insane because it's so interesting how white women in particular, and white women such as myself, upper middle class, white women, you know, education, I have a PhD, whatever, it puts me in a certain subset of society, how quickly we forget what it was like to be our mother or our grandmother, or our great-grandmother. And that it's not that long ago that you could have a husband cheating on you six ways to Sunday and beating you, and you couldn't get a divorce unless you were able to You could be raped by your husband up until 1993. Marital rape was not a thing. And no-fault divorce was not a thing. So you couldn't ask for a divorce without your dad or somebody hiring the private detective and proving extraordinary adultery. And in some cases, it doesn't matter if the man committed adultery in many states on the on the books in, in these United States. But if you were a woman um, and you committed adultery. Then he could divorce you like that because the woman's body is the cow. The woman's body is what is impregnated and commodified. She cannot give birth outside of herself. The man has this freedom of gestating outside of his own body and thus that grants him an extraordinary amount of power, not to mention sexual dimorphism and that he is stronger. But just the idea of no-fault divorce and how much of our economic resources were based on working through the patriarch within your own nuclear household, it's so extreme how much women's bodies were controlled and commodified. And it makes absolute sense that the women in power in the past hundred years, the, the feminists who have made the most inroads either had one kid or no kids because having a child is the best and easiest, fastest way to lose your power, to, to get a man all over you. I mean, you know, I'm divorced, you know, I have one kid, but you know, I'm in a 50% custody relationship and you know how that works for me in terms of the imposition of patriarchal power in my life every day, every day. And that I, I have to submit to that in ways that I don't think I would have to in an anti-patriarchal system or a pre-patriarchal system. It's it's true, but also looking at your situation from my situation where I'm still married, have two kids, there are some things when it comes to parenting, when you are in like post-divorce phase that do free you in some ways, not necessarily in ways that you would ask for or want, but there, there are some freedoms, I think, that you get back just a little bit. It's also another reason why allowing women to divorce is, is so important. 
and the thing in that no fault divorce Atlantic article that was so stunning, and I don't remember the name of the author, she's a professor, is that when no fault divorce was instituted, rape within a marriage plummeted according to statistics that are kept in hospitals. Beatings of wives plummeted in statistics that are kept in hospitals. And the murder of a wife also plummeted in statistics that are kept in hospital. No fault divorce means that the man has to fucking behave and be a good person and be nice to his wife and not just control and order and militarily, using the Michael Mann term, violently control her. He has to actually socially engage and get along. And it's better for the woman. But there are states now, Texas right now, is very interested in returning to a pre-non-no-fault divorce. That's a little confusing the way I said it. But a divorce that demands there be some sort of fault. You can't just claim irreconcilable differences. You can't go in and just say... You have to have some some justification, some reason that's acceptable to the court. They're calling it a return to covenantal marriage in Texas. And they have the votes in their state legislature to do it. And what that would do to women would be more women in marriage would be murdered. More women in marriage would be beaten. More women in marriage would be raped. And I mean, those numbers would skyrocket. And we have to remember those things. Our mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers, they didn't talk about it because you don't reveal that shame that you experience, that loss of power. It's something that the patriarchy can keep within four walls. And it's something that ideologically is so easily forgotten. And women in dominant positions of power or closer to the dominant patriarchs can dilute themselves into thinking, oh, this is not my problem anymore. It's other women's problem. Well, let me tell you when a white woman in my class, women in power speaks up and says, I don't have this problem. Almost always a woman of color will raise her hand and say, I'm sorry. This is very much a problem when I, where I came from, where I grew up. And, um, and so this is not happy puppies and rainbows as much as you think it is. Yeah, a, a so, problem for one person in, in a society is a problem for all. But what I will say, one of the, I don't know if you could call it an advantage uh, of these sort of recent um, moves as far as legislation, laws, cultural forces or whatever, um, when it comes to taking down Roe v. Wade, these new burgeoning attacks on no-fault divorce. The patriarchy, as you alluded to earlier, has gotten to such a point that it is starting to reveal its hand and it is going Mm -hmm. to become harder to convince Mm -hmm. people that they are not, that their bodies are not being confined or controlled by the patriarchy in any way when you have women forced to carry pregnancies to turn when you have women who are dying because Mm -hmm. they can't get a DNC with a non-viable pregnancy, or when you have women dying from domestic abuse mm-hmm. in a marriage, stuck in a marriage because there is no more no-fault divorce. So once this starts to be revealed more and more and become more explicit, I think, in people's lived experience, that ideology is going to fade, uh, hopefully, and people will be able to see exactly what they need to work against. A bit more clearly. I love this point because there are discussions in the, in the Michael Mann and other um, critiques of the Michael Mann who use the, the rubric and lay it out. The ideology is incredibly successful at getting people, women in this case, in this discussion to get something that is not in their best interest. But when it fails and you can see the economic and the political and the violence and it overpowers the ideological and 
so much so that you don't believe in the ideological anymore. The ideology can be flipped. Or that you reject it outright. Yeah. Like this does not work for society anymore. Yeah. And if the best way of not being subsumed by patriarchal power is giving up your ability to have children or having your children in a different way, and you're totally right, being divorced in a 50% situation gives me a hell of a lot of time back. Less so now. I'm all sick. There's always a caveat. I know, there always is. But the harder they push back, the more you say their hand is revealed. And abortion has now become, abortion strictures have become very unpopular countrywide, even in red states. And now that they're going after birth control and no-fault marriage, it's going to be a really interesting time to be a woman. And this is, in my opinion, how the next civil war will be fought in this country through different laws in different states and women applying for asylum because they can't get the abortion care that they need and the state of Nebraska will not allow them to leave. And they apply for asylum in California and are they granted it? How do they get there? I mean, these are the kinds of things that are going to be taking place in the next five years. They're already happening now in some ways for some women. And it's, um, it, you're asking for good news. <laughs> I know you are, but it's like, it means it's working. It means that the anti-patriarchal laws and social changes that are being implemented organically and naturally in the United States or in modern day Egypt, where women are deciding, look, one or couples are deciding one kid, two kids, maybe that's it, where late capitalism is demanding that everyone work or we can't pay rent. It means that with all of these things changing, there's only so much pushback that can be allowed. Once you give people birth control, are you really going to be able to take it back? Once you give people abortion rights, how? The, the, yes, more children are being born in these red states, but over the long term, are you really going to be able to take it away? I don't think you can. So the patriarchy is pushing back very, very hard, but it's just a sign that the anti-patriarchal movement is getting stronger and stronger and that in in some ways it should galvanize you rather than than weaken you and make you fall into the depths of despair. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Can I I end this with a comparison to uh, jujitsu in the jujitsu is life category? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But for for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I train Brazilian jujitsu. I love it. And I'm just. She even made me go once, and I. I, I did. Um, I got Kara on the mat, and she choked me. Choke. <laughs> well, but you know, we took turns. You choked me, and you know. I mean, not really choked, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but um, mine were more effective. But you know, we'll set that aside. But no, I was just thinking as you were talking about where's the positive in this. And first of all, I I want to point out because when you train jujitsu, obviously you train with people whose bodies are bigger, stronger, more athletic. And one thing it has taught me is that this idea that a a weaker body is less valuable is a patriarchal construct. It, it, it's not necessarily true, right? They're telling you that the stronger body, the more athletic body is better. And that's not necessarily the case. But the other thing, we were talking about how uncomfortable some of these discussions or perspectives and comparisons can be. In jujitsu, if you turn away, if you give your back, you're a goner, right? Yeah. You have to face the problem. You have to face 
the yeah. opponent that's in front of you oh, in order that. to even fight. So you have to look at what makes you uncomfortable. You have to look at what they don't want you to see, right? The opponent d doesn't want you to see them, right? They don't want that attention on them. And so by turning your attention to these things that make you uncomfortable or even, you know, that make you feel that you just vehemently disagree with them, I would encourage you to roll with it, confront it, figure out why you feel that way. And just in the very act of doing that and questioning, you're chipping away at that social cultural power of the, that the patriarchy has. Yeah. That's, I love that. It's so beautifully stated. It's a wonderful analogy. Um, it's the way that I wrestled with family back in the day. Lots of grappling. Never turn your back. You, you are done. Somebody it's will so jump true. on you like Gollum it's, trying to get the ring. You know, based on some of the stories <laughs> you've told, it's amazing that you all survived your childhood. Yeah. I swear. I know. It was pretty rough. But in, in another way too, Amber, and I'll, since I just mentioned Gollum, I'll end with my analogy, which is like, it, so much of feminism in the last hundred years has had to use patriarchal power systems in the patriarchal power construct to find their power. And then we have to remember that we're using those patriarchal power systems. And right, you recreate you know, it as you attempt to take more right. power for yourself. Yeah. Right. So if you're a really important female CEO, you may have had to play the patriarchal game to a T, a Maggie Thatcher game to get to where you need to be. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a feminist who's looking for a post-patriarchal world. You're benefiting from this, right? And for those of us who are fighting the anti-patriarchal fight, because it is the water in which we swim and because it is the morality that we grew up with or the religious institution that we're a part of or whatever, it takes so much to constantly deconstruct this world of who's benefiting, who's not. It's like being anti-racist, where every day you have to ask yourself, am I being anti-racist today? Am I being anti-patriarchal today? It's the same kind of constant questioning of what can I do and how can I work with it? But if you're going to fight fire with fire, you're going to turn into the same kind of fiery, demonic being. It's not going to help you. You have to let the patriarchy fail, in a sense. You have to, to go back to my Lord of the Rings analogy, you can grab the ring and put it on, but it's just going to make you exactly what that golem creature has become. Or you can find a way to name the problem, identify the problem, analyze the problem, and do what you can to let the patriarchy fucking dance around in consternation and righteous indignation that you are not going along with the morality of the system so much so that they fucking fall into the fire. And if you do it yourself, if you push them and everyone sees you pushing them, then it's done. They'll be like, you evil witch, you did this or you did that. And then you've lost everything. But you have to play a kind of psyops game in the, this construct that we live in to understand where your place is in it, how you benefit, and then how you can somehow defeat it. It's a constant daily attempt to let Gollum reveal himself and pull yeah, it all I, into the fire I, I like the comparison. The one ring of power is constantly trying to get back to its lord, right? Its mm -hmm. master. Mm -hmm. And Frodo in taking it into Mount Doom is constant, like literally feels the physical weight of the ring trying to get back. Yeah. 
The patriarchy will subsume us all because you and I, if we played it right, could be very wealthy and successful in this patriarchal system as white women. We could easily work this to our advantage. And we have generational wealth because of it that other people don't necessarily have. And that's the kind of thing you have to constantly be questioning and asking. What's your place compared to someone else's place? Yep. Just an awareness, new perspectives, always trying to look at the same old situation with new eyes. Which is why I like the Michael Mann intersectionality of IEMP. Let's add a B. Let's add the body to that and look at how people with different bodies, whether they be disabled, female, and I'm not necessarily comparing them, but you can if you've got morning sickness, whether whether they have a different skin color, whether they're a smaller body or a child's body, whether they're a non-binary body, whether they have a different sexual identity. All of these, or what might be in a patriarchal society be considered an aberrant sexual identity, all of these things determine how you find your place in this world. And the more intersectionality one can bring, the stronger the rubric of understanding power. I mean, I know we didn't talk a lot about the ancient world in this we, podcast. We, got, we, we made some points. I think we kept pulling it back from time to time. But I think part of this discussion is simply, as you were saying, to create that perspective, create that awareness so that say, you know, the next podcast you listen to on ancient history or the next documentary you watch or book that you pick up, you have this new idea floating around in the back of your mind. And I I would bet that it's going to make people think at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. So do an analysis of your own life. Get a blank piece of paper out, write down IEMPB <laughs> and work out Who owns the scarce resources? Who controls the scarce resources in your own little world? Ideological, economic, military, political body. See where that shakes out. And I think it would be a really interesting exercise. Let us know. And, you know, when this comes out, you can go to the Substack. None of the answers make you uncomfortable or unhappy. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it so wrong. So wrong. And then we can discuss when we, because we're going to do a companion piece, I think, in the Substack as well. Yes, that's right. Ancientnow.substack.com. So if you haven't been by, stop by and and check out the posts and the podcast is now hosted mm-hmm. there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's a fun place to hang out. So with that, I'll say this is. Afterlife of Ancient Egypt. I got confused because you have a Substack now that's called Ancient Now. It's Afterlife of Ancient Egypt, you guys. Sorry. Do you want to yeah. try it again? I know it's good. This How's is that? cute. Hey. <laughs> we, we end with the with a mistake, but it's, oh. it's fine. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. 
I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.